I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share their real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. <laughs> and today we all wish we were in Mexico with our guest who is in Mexico while he's talking to us. I know. And I can hear, I feel like I can hear the ocean waves and I want to be there right now. <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> Hi, Josh. Hi, how are you doing? We've had Josh on before and we're super happy to have you back on again. Today we're going to have a little different conversation, but I think it's an interesting one to have and it's really a uh, a conversation about what it's like to be a person of color who's raised in a white household or adopted and raised in a white household. Right. So Josh, tell us your story and start us off. Yeah, of course. So again, my name is Josh Chamberlain. So I think something that is really interesting about my story in particular is that I actually do have birth siblings to start out that are still with my birth mother. So that is something that has also created another level of complexity on my side of that relationship. But I do want to focus more on the relationship between my parents and being adopted. So I was just a few days old when I was adopted. Uh, my parents had tried um, LDS adoption services and some other adoptive agencies, and they didn't work out. And then they got a call that there would be a child available in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's where I was born. And... They flew out there the day that I was born, and literally within a couple of days, I was theirs, and uh, they stayed in Philadelphia for a little while, just kind of touring. Philadelphia had a couple of laws, or Pennsylvania had a couple of laws, where you had to stay in the state for a little while, so they just kind of toured around, and then they were able to bring me home. At that time, I had two sisters that were biological to my parents, and then me. And then later, two years later, they would adopt my brother, Ben, who's also black and from Kentucky. So that's kind of our family dynamic where we're at now. That's kind of how it all started. <laughs> so I know you didn't want to go into this, but you brought it up now. <laughs> no, no, no. You can go into anything. <laughs> so um, is, is your adoption open? Do you have a relationship with your birth mother? Yeah, so it's an open adoption. And I, I mean, she may listen to this too. And I like to be as transparent as possible. I don't know if we have a relationship in the sense of, what somebody would consider like even like just friends just because of some of the unique circumstances. But I do talk to my birth sister a little bit and a couple of my birth aunts. It's an open adoption, but well, as I was growing up, my parents were always very open that, Hey, your birth mother sent your birthday card or Hey, she reached out and I had a box and I honestly hadn't opened any of those cards until I was in my twenties. And they just kind of sat in that box because I didn't feel like I needed that connection. I feel like I had a family. I feel like I had my siblings. I feel like I had my parents, my cousins, like what any normal family had. And I didn't see the value and opening up, I guess, in my mind, it was just a whole nother world or life that I wasn't really a part of. That's really and interesting so, to me. So my mom is adopted. 
okay, she cool. found out when she was 13. Oh, wow. And I found out when my mom was 13 that she was adopted. So it mm-hmm. kind of created some interesting dynamics. I always thought my grandparents were, were my biological grandparents. I still think about them in that same way today. Like when I right. think about genetic health histories and stuff like that, you default to I, them. I default to them. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. even though I know they're not biological to me, they, in my mind, they are. And so, yeah, it is interesting. My mom had always had an interest in understanding where she came from, like Mm -hmm. why she was adopted. And when my mom was 47, I actually, we could do a whole show on this, actually. I actually found her birth family and uh, Mm. her mom had died when her mom was 47 years old. Oh, wow. So it created some interesting dynamics mentally there. But adoption is such an interesting experience for the adopted child because I feel like depending on who you are or the circumstance of your adoption or how open it was, like there's so many factors that kind of fall into how you either want to know that other family or maybe you have a little less interest. It's interesting to me Mm -hmm. that you were like, well, I have everything I need here. I have a question, Josh. You said that you took those cards and things, you kept them. You kept them unopened until you were 20 or something. So did you at some point go through them and was there kind of a turning point in your life where you felt curious, hey, now I want to know this? Or can you talk a little bit about, you know, yeah. did, did you open them? Where are they now? Did you keep them? What was it like to go through those years worth of correspondence all at once? Yeah. So, you know, oh, this is, there's a lot. <laughs> so quickly, I'm going to touch on my brother had a closed adoption. As we were growing up, I would be getting these cards. I'd be having my birth mother, when I was much younger, call my mom and say, can I talk to him? And these things. And my brother, he craved that. He craved that interaction with his birth family. And he didn't have it. I did not want it. And I had, like, an open portal. Like, I could have probably gone out to Philadelphia if I wanted to. I mean, it was so open on their side. They wanted to be so open, not knowing how I would feel. But in his case, he didn't ever have the option. So I think because the option, I think it's kind of like that when you tell somebody no, yeah. they want it. Sure. Because yeah, that, I have the option. That's what I was referring it, to. It's like, yeah, it, exactly. It's so it's such an interesting dynamic of what happens yeah. with adopted kids. Because, yeah. yeah, it's just like you're saying. It's like, well, he craved it and just wanted that so bad. And here you had the opportunity and you're like, nope, thanks. I've, I have everything I need. Right. Well, and. Through my childhood, I had experiences where being able to talk to my birth mother or being able to interact with her or my birth siblings may have helped, but I was maybe naive or stubborn on, I thought it was a part of me that I was protecting that lack of relationship almost. It's kind of weird, but I felt like by not having that relationship, it was somewhat protective because I didn't have to know more than I knew. I could just kind of go off of what I was told and it didn't allow me to have to explore that deeply. And what changed that was I was on my mission and um, I was one of the first missions to get Facebook and use Facebook. And I started to realize there was people adding me that I had never heard of. And then I started to look at the last name and I was like, now that looks familiar. And I realized that they were all my birth cousins, aunts and uncles, and then eventually my birth mother. And I was like, oh, I wonder how they ran into me and I was like well I was serving in Florida we were on the east coast I was like I don't know if the algorithm did that I don't know if they just looked up my name and so all of a sudden I was getting messages from all these birth family 
people that I never talked to asking questions. I got a long message from my birth mother, a long message from my birth father. And that's another story thought to be birth father. And so all this stuff kind of had ballooned on my mission. And I'm at that point, I mean, for those that are listening, that aren't members of Church of Jesus Christ of Saints or haven't served a mission, you're pretty focused on missionary work. And the messages, by the way, I just, I want to make sure I get that clear. I was getting these Facebook requests and I just accepted the friend requests. It wasn't until I got back two years later that I realized that Facebook, because I wasn't friends with them when they sent the messages, that they didn't come through. Got it. So they actually were in a little separate spot that I saw two years later, I started reading these messages that had been sent two years previous. So everybody thought I was ignoring them for these two years and I didn't even know I had the messages. So yeah. it was a lot, a lot of information, a lot of communication. And it was just before my mission, maybe when I was 17, that I actually opened up that box and went through everything that had been sent. And so I kind of had an idea of where they were and the relationship they desired. They did desire to have some communication, but I didn't yet reach out with communication. I wasn't quite ready, still a little young. And so when I got back from my mission, that's when I made my first kind of interaction, sending a message to both my birth mother, birth father on Facebook saying, Hey, unless you both message me, this is kind of how I feel about it. And that's where I first kind of interacted that way. I think that's really impressive. You say you're, you're young, and yet I'm thinking of the maturity you had as a 17-year-old to choose to go through that box and be okay with not complying, for lack of a better word, to what they request. I know one of my biggest personality flaws is I'm a people pleaser. I want mm-hmm. to do what people want me to do. And I think I would have really grappled with that being at peace with not knowing and having those connections, but knowing they wanted them, I'm impressed that you could still kind of say, Hey, that's, I'm not ready for that. I don't want that. And let that be, I kudos to you because I don't think everyone could do that. There would be those who craved the relationship or maybe those who felt obligated to have that Mm -hmm. relationship. So I'm interested in learning what, what does that look like today? How many years ago was your mission? What does that look like at this point in your adult life? Yeah, my mission was about nine years ago. I left on my mission roughly. From that time of when I got back till now, I've had two major interactions and then some messaging between them. But the only in-person interactions I've had are ones that kind of fell into the lap, at least one of them. Um, We were taking a family trip to New York City, and it happened to be the same week that my birth mother was getting married. So what happened was... She sent me a message and said, hey, I'm getting married. I'd love if you would come. And I was like, you know, it's been years and years. They've been wanting to have this interaction in some way. And I said, maybe this is a good place to to do that. I don't know, hindsight, if it was for everybody. I mean, it did create some distance, obviously. The bride and everybody trying to talk to her. Like, we did not have an intimate or personal conversation about anything because there wasn't that time. Right. And maybe that was by design on sure. both of us saying, right. you know, this is can, a great opportunity to just be in the same room. Uh-huh. Yes. Like a first date so, with someone you don't know. You're exactly. Not gonna, yeah. Exactly. It was, it was that. And so I went to that wedding. The first time I saw my birth mother was walking down the aisle. Wow. So that was a unique situation for sure. I had brought a friend with me that lived in New York. I didn't bring any of my family. And I don't know what that was. They didn't ask to go. But I also just, I didn't know. I was like, it's a wedding, and it's also this is possibly getting of a relationship that's unique. So I didn't know who to bring and what to do. But sure. my parents have always been very like, you just have to do what you need to do. 
like they've never been restrictive of information. Yeah. They've never been like pushy towards me going and meeting them or not. How they just awesome been, like, just that? do what you feel. Oh, it's, that was probably why I was maybe empowered to make choices the way I did. It was yeah. always my choice. It was never something I had to grapple with with them. At least it was never an argument I had to have with them, which was always a big blessing. And then my second interaction was with my birth father. Um, and I go to Florida a lot. That's where I served my mission. And I found out that he lived in Miami when I was on my mission, actually. And so when I got back from my mission, I had been to the wedding. And that, that wedding, by the way, was only three years ago, almost now. Oh, pretty recent. So pretty recent. And then about six months later, I went to Florida and drove from Cape Coral to Miami. And he lives in, like, Hollywood area. And so I went. He had some family over. His son's girlfriend, they had like a big barbecue set up. I went and I spent the day there just chatting. But at the end of that interaction, he really wanted to do a paternity test. So we ended up doing that and it came back negative. So, yeah, so that was a big deal for me. It was quite a uh, twist. It's almost like it now sounds like a TV show. (laughs) I was going to say this sounds like a TV show. (laughs) Yeah. But what is that like for for you as a young man? You finally, you finally opened yourself up to having any interaction at all, and then you find out that it's actually the wrong person. Because I think that would affect your dynamic with the birth father and the birth mother by virtue of, of that whole relationship. <laughs> so, so yeah, and I have kind of just got to a point where I feel like openness in this realm of things has been really important for me. Because what happens a lot of time is if you do feel guilt, if you feel like you've done something wrong, you obviously put it on yourself. And I felt like that about a lot of my birth situation. I was like, well, they kept my birth brother and my birth sister, but not me. And then this was a huge deal for me because I had been told for 25, 24 years that this is my birth father by somebody. (laughs) I'm trying to be nice. And it wasn't, and it wasn't my parents. It was my birth mother who had thought this was my birth father. So then my relationship with her became more difficult as well. Like you said, that created this because I was like, well, wait, I just flew out to this place, met with this person, and I was in a random person's home. By the way, that random with person with the rest at one of that point, random person's family, right? Yes, exactly. And yeah. in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, I'm with, and kind of a backstory: this person that didn't know I was adopted initially, then fought the adoption after I was adopted. Oh, well, he was just as disappointed and kind of annoyed about it because he had these all these years thought the same thing and had had this perception that. This, this, and Man, that. the psychology and, all around. Oh, yeah. So it became kind of a harder situation right. than it was. All the trust that I wanted to have there and that everybody wanted to have there just kind of fell away under one. Was she married was to just, this man or, or was no. this? Oh, okay. No. So she was never, this was her first marriage when I went in a couple of years ago. She had never been married before. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. That's why it so was she, a very interesting she thing. She just assumed that this guy was the father and, and he... Yeah, based on time and her relationship at the time. And that's the hard thing. Like, in confronting that, I didn't want to be insensitive. And I think I had been a little bit, maybe on how I said something, it did create a little bit of friction because I was just like, well, how do you not know, essentially, is how I put it. Right. And that wasn't maybe the best way. But I was frustrated out of the length of time that I thought this was a person. And so I felt like it was, there was information being withheld. It is a fair question. It's a fair question that could spin several people into like years of therapy to resolve. I mean, I'm impressed you can even tell this story kind of like, hey, so this thing happened and it was a big interaction. (laughs) I mean, a lot of people 
paternity, adoption, some of this identity can yeah. really be derailing for right. your life. Right. Well, I wish we would have taken the paternity test first because we were like doing the, yeah, you kind of look like this son. Yeah, I can see this. And we're like trying to find what makes us family connected. Right. And then realizing, well, that was why it's so hard. <laughs> there wasn't a lot. And it was obvious to me, like physically, I was like, I just don't feel like I look like anybody here. So this is even more weird. Then he brought that up and I was like, well, yeah, I'm willing to do that because I think there is a, somebody's misinformed on. And the reason I tried it, Again, my therapy, which when people go to my Facebook, my Instagram, I talk about some things like that are pretty deep about race, adoption, and the emotions behind that, because I feel like that is a good therapy for myself, which I know it's not for everybody, but it's also good for people that are going through that right now. It provides some type of maybe normalcy to their life. They're not the only one. Because like, I mean, I'm not kidding. Like within 20 minutes, I sent a meme to my sister and her husband that were living in Florida that said... It was the Murray or Jerry Springer saying you are not the father because oh. I had to laugh about it. If I didn't laugh about it, there would have been a lot of tears. I had to like turn it into yeah. a comedy because it was a lot. Well, yeah, you, that is you take the so time, you, you go out there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is amazing. Well, we need to take a break. But when we come back yeah. and I know that this was really not the focus, but um, uh, <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, we will come back. And when we come back, we'll get to the focus of what it's like to be. Come. A black child raised in a white family in a very white culture. Yeah. And yeah. we'll we'll be back in just a moment. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen. We're back. So glad to have you back on. What a crazy story. And I think I think you <laughs> should maybe Springer. write a book about this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every adopted family has multiple stories. Like I said, my mom was adopted. My sister has adopted a ton of kids. And my husband had a child that was born out of wedlock that I discovered after we had lost our like third baby. Whoa. Um, he got served papers. He was served along with six men and he was the lucky winner. Wow. So that was almost derailing to our marriage. Um, uh-huh. That is a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. So I'm, I'm listening to your story and I'm like, Oh man, too many, too many pieces. Too many there you pieces go. And similarities. Yes. Like it's <laughs> adoption in and of itself is such a blessing. And also it's complicated. It's complicated. Very it's, complicated. You know, we need adoption. We need foster families. It's mm-hmm. an important 
so important. And yet I have seen so many complications, even in the best of situations. Right. I have a girlfriend who wants to do a whole Instagram on um, 23andMe and Ancestry and the DNA kits because of all of the creations. All of the shock. All the shock value. Yeah. Yeah. So she, she was adopted by her mom's first husband, but her dad has several children spread throughout Utah and surrounding states. And um, she has you know, connecting with them. So, I mean, this is just a complicated, complicated process, right? It's never, it's never as simple as like, I'm an adopted child and I have this wonderful (laughs) family. It's never that simple. It's just not. All right. So we wanted to talk about what it's like. So you're adopted. You have this other family that you have found out about and it's an open adoption. All of those things are for your childhood portion, you're just really not interested in, in really even kind of going there. We wanted to mm-hmm. focus more today on what it's like when you're young. You know, is there a moment where you realize you're black and you're in a white community? <laughs> it's like, you know? I mean, at first you're three, you're four, you're, you know, your conscious awareness. I, I, I mean, are you aware? When does that become like, hey, I'm different? No, it's interesting you bring that up. So again, obviously everybody has their unique situation. And I did want to say before I even started and I forgot is like, even when it comes to like racism or race adoption, like I don't want people to think that I know because I like, I know everybody's is so different and everybody has this unique thing because this is my experience. But I think there are a lot of similarities. And one of those similarities for me was if you come from a really loving family that really doesn't address it other than when you want to address it like they're not shoving it down your throat that you're their adopted brother my sister for a great example when she brought now a brother-in-law over after they met us he said you have black brothers and you never said that she's like oh i don't think of that like not in a way that i don't see race she obviously saw race but she didn't think of us as that she needed to bring that up to somebody that it was like this key thing about us it wasn't part of our like our identity wasn't josh the adopted brother right my family never made us fail or me fail can't speak for my brother, but made me feel like I was the adopted kid and therefore would have worse, better, different treatment. I was just there. The time that it came to me kind of hard was in fifth or sixth grade when my teacher was talking to the class and she said, so Josh, I want to know how does it feel to be adopted? And I kind of sat back and was like, I didn't answer the question. I didn't know how to answer because I just then realized, wait, I am adopted. That means that I. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was that long before I really process what it meant in the sense of a social aspect. And obviously I'd had other little conversations or things about adoption come up, but never in a way where it like smacked me across the face, like you're adopted. It just never was so prevalent or just out there floating in the air in front of me. So it took a long time for me to realize or have any type of feeling like, whoa, that is something I should probably think about a little bit. (laughs) So yeah, that was a big deal. That time in my life, that is when I first started to have a couple questions. That's when I kind of referred back to that box. And I may have even read a, one letter at that point, but I did not go through all of them. But I remember there was a short time in there after that that I kind of went through an identity thing. And it, again, that was tied to sixth grade when I had a racial experience that I spoke of last time with my teacher. Right. So that kind of opened up like this. Okay, so your adoption isn't just about 
being in a white family or being adopted. It's about being a black child in a white family and all the things that will happen and that have happened that I kind of played off. Like in second grade, when I had a situation with a friend saying something that was very insensitive and every year, pretty much up to that, I just played that off as, you know, it's because I'm black and that's why people see me different, but never realized that I'm also transracial. Like I was moved into this community as a black person. And that is why some of these interactions are happening. It's not just because I'm black. It's because I'm a black person, a white community. And I didn't make those connections until that sixth grade, seventh grade time where I was like, oh, that's why I've had some of these situations. It didn't all connect at the same time. So there's a lot of flashbacks and a lot of like woes. <laughs> well, that makes sense there. because I mean, as children, we don't have total consciousness, right? right. We don't have total self-awareness of how we're perceived or where our place really is exactly, and how that all works together. So it's awesome for me to hear that your siblings were just like, he's our brother. Why would I need to qualify, qualify him as either one adopted and two by race? (laughs) He's my brother. Right. Right. And that sounds like a a really healthy place to be raised in. No, it was healthy. My household was, I don't think I could ask for a better family to raise in as an adopted person. And on top of that, I remember at one point, I wish I remembered the exact age. I want to say it was similar time again, that I was like looking in my parents' bookshelves. And I might mention this last time, but, and realized they had books about like raising a black child in a white community, like all these books, like a little section in there. So they had done some background thoughts, research, looking into it, which I never, they never said they did. And I still hadn't ever really brought it up to them. I don't still know if I have, even though they've listened to me talk about it before and stuff. I still haven't really asked them what they did to do that, but they did do little things like we, as members of Church of Christ Latter-day Saints, we attend a Genesis every now and then when I was younger, because we used to like to go. I stopped liking to go, but at its first I like to go. So we go to, it's a black group that still believes the exact same things. And the church is like, kind of said, yeah, you can do it like this, but they introduce kind of more gospel music. It's a little bit more upbeat, a little more culturally black. And so that's something that was really interesting growing up. Like I remember being like, wow, they're really making that. I remember thinking this is an effort for us. Like obviously my parents probably aren't super comfortable. They're the only two white people in here, but we on our daily basis are the only two black people in all the situations. So yeah. it kind of was that cool trade-off. Like those moments were valuable to see my parents trying to help us connect to our culture and that was, or to black culture. And that's something I want to talk about just briefly is that boy, what was his concern again? I, I had something to say to that. He's very proud of being black. He loves it. But at the same time, he really tries hard to make sure he fits in. He doesn't want yeah. to be any more different than he already fills in basically all white school. He's just more aware of what other kids wear, et cetera, so he can fit in. So maybe yeah. advice along that line. Yeah, so with that, like, I'm glad you're proud to be black because, like, that is another hard thing. Like, some people wish they weren't. Um, some people want to hide that under so many things. And as a kid, I remember, like, talking to my brother and having situations where I was like, Ben, if you just didn't wear baggy shorts or, Ben, if you just wouldn't wear a hat. And I didn't do those things because I felt – by dressing differently as well that would help me fit in. I felt like if I, like after seventh grade and we didn't have a dress code or ninth grade, I guess it was, like I wore a button-up shirt 98% of the time. You can ask any of my friends, 
and like nice, just kind of like khakis or whatever. I always tried to dress out of what I thought specifically for me, what I thought would create an interaction with teachers, police. I always tried to build a character that didn't fit their description. And so that made me personally look at my culture or other black people differently because I felt like they were doing something themselves to get in those situations. So there was this other mental side of this that was like, okay, why, why do these interactions happen? Why does this stuff happen? How do I avoid it? And what I realized is while I was doing those things, it still didn't keep me out of every situation as I've talked about on my posts. And so I realized it was more than that, but at the time it felt like it was a step that I was taking to fit in, to feel like I was like the other kids. And that is, I think a very common feeling trying to fit in, but being proud of yourself, but not losing yourself and trying to fit in and be proud of yourself because it's easy to do a lot of things that you can still be proud of yourself while doing, even though it's not something that you would necessarily do every day if you were just not worrying about other things. So, you know, that's really complicated. Maybe you'll understand that how I said it, <laughs> but well, I think there's that's, a lot. I think that's interesting, even in your saying that, and I see what you're saying that you want to dress in a way so you're not going to get in trouble or not kind of stand out or not fit maybe that stereotype. Mm-hmm. But by simply saying that, you're acknowledging there is There's that stereotype. stereotype. <laughs> and right. I think that's one thing that I'd love to get your input on. And Michelle and I have talked about this and I've talked with several other people. We do live in here in Utah and a lot of our suburbs are predominantly not very racially diverse. And yeah. on the surface, it's easy to identify race as a diversity because it's a color of skin. It's, it's physical. We see it. But I think sometimes we assume when the color of the skin isn't different that there's no diversity. And I, I don't think that's, that's necessarily true. There's, there's all kinds right. of diversity. But I will admit that if you were to really drill down and look into implicit bias, some of these things we talk about with diversity and equity, inclusion, training, a lot of us here in the state of Utah would probably be pretty guilty of some of these biases or stereotypes. And I don't think it's because we're all racist, hateful people. No. But I do think there's a there's a level of ignorance that comes with lack of experience, lack of exposure. You know, my kids go to a school in Weber County schools and the diversity they'll run into there might be whether most of the kids are Caucasian or Hispanic. But other races, other nationalities, other you know, and if anybody doesn't speak English as their first language in our school, it's probably Spanish as their primary and that's it. There's not other diversity there tends to sometimes be a predominant religion or a predominant way of thinking of things so i'd love to hear your take on that now that you're you're a young adult i mean you're younger than me and michelle uh, but you are an adult you've lived through this it sounds like you have an awesome family who has put kind of the ball in your court when you're comfortable when you're not comfortable and let you kind of take the lead do you have any advice for some of us who don't want to be racist and we don't want to unintentionally offend, but we probably are clueless. Like I will admit that there's a lot of us who are probably pretty clueless, but maybe if you gave us a few things to think about or be aware of or be mindful of, because even you saying that, Hey, I didn't want to wear the baggy shorts and the t-shirt because that would fit the stereotype too much. Well, that's just acknowledging we got a pretty bad stereotype. If a black kid in a button up shirt isn't trouble, but a black kid in baggy shorts is trouble. We've, 
we've right. still got that problem, right? Do you see what I'm asking? Like, can you, yeah. can you help us out here? Because I am a Caucasian woman born and bred in Utah, surrounded by a lot of people who on the surface look a lot like me. And sometimes yep. that diversity inside, we don't get to know each other deep enough to see that diversity, but we see skin color as a diversity. Right. Well, you know, that's a great way to phrase that question, too, because a lot of the time, so one phrase that I still am kind of understanding is, so what's your culture? So my culture is Utah, member of the Church of Jesus Christ Saturday Saints, and that pretty much sums up my culture as Josh. Now, if somebody else were to say what they thought my culture was, they wouldn't guess that off of seeing me. They wouldn't guess that even I'm living in Utah. They wouldn't guess that off of a lot of things because of race. And there are arguments on this, but race has, you can have black culture, but because you're black, it doesn't mean you have black culture. and doesn't mean you naturally understand black culture. It means that there are certain things because of your race that you understand, but your hair having to be treated differently or your skin not burning as easily. Those aren't cultural things unless they are tied to the actual culture. So, for instance, if you have braids for this reason or the culture specifically pushes that to be something that's done because of something, that's where the culture comes in. But I can't claim to know black culture technically because I never was raised around black culture. I've seen it and I've now experienced some of it because of meeting my birth family and so forth and being around people that were raised in black culture, but my culture is not their culture. I can't claim that. I can claim the race and some things that naturally come from being black, but the things that I can't claim are certain, like even when I met my birth family, certain movies, certain foods, certain ways of going about things. I don't do those things and they're not natural things to do just because I'm black. Those are things that are taught, passed down, just like in any other culture is taught and passed down. So I consider my culture to be funeral potatoes and, you know, <laughs> and jello, jello, not, yeah, not, <laughs> um, without, you know, collard greens and. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah, so I have a girlfriend who has adopted a couple of kids who, who are black and, and she has a one or two of her own children and they're white. And, um, one of the things that she feels bad about is that she has not been able to connect her black children to their culture. Mm -hmm. And she does have a child with some disabilities and there are some behaviors that he exhibits that she feels is very much a genetic predisposition, mm -hmm. um, which may or may not be true. I mean, I have a son yeah. that has a fight or flight uh, response whenever he's in trouble and mm -hmm. and so does she but she has assimilated that more closely re related to his historical genetics that mm -hmm. it's in his nature to to flee and to run and she worries that if there's a time that he gets in trouble with like authorities or cops that he mm. could be at risk right yeah so it's kind of interesting to hear you delineate that because you're you're saying I don't even have that culture because it's not a part. It was not my upbringing. It was not mm -hmm. part of my awareness. There is none of that. 
Well, and it's it's kind of that age old question of you know nature versus nurture. Versus mm-hmm. nurture, yeah. And, yeah. and where the truth is probably both. You know, I mean, right. I'm not, yeah. not any one of us is only biological or only culturally right. influenced. But I like what you've said, and it's actually made me think of other places where, you know, this dichotomy between is it your race or is it your culture? I can think religiously, is it your doctrine or is it your culture? culture I can think yeah. familiarly, is this is this a culture or is this really a conviction? And I think sometimes we get hung up on culture. And culture yeah. is a 100%. beautiful thing. Yeah. But sometimes we let the culture define either ourselves or our perception yeah. of others when in reality, sometimes culture is just culture. It's a custom. It's a tradition. Yeah. It's, it's a, so that's that's a lot of food for thought for yeah. me. Um, I joined the church as outside you mentioned of Utah. And okay. so when we moved to Utah, I was like, what the yeah. heck is this Even place? with the same religion and church, but different mm-hmm. culture. I saw that. And I know we it, need to take a break in a quick second. Part of yeah. my mission, I served on Easter Island where oh, they have oh. a lot of pagan Oh, tradition, but also a lot of Catholicism because the the Spaniards came and and so you would see that you would see, you know, again the the doctrine or the teaching of a religion or whatever the the topic is, impacted by the culture and maybe how much of the conversation our country is having right now about race and stereotypes and judgment and biases, how much is it really about the biological race? And how much is it about the culture we've superimposed over our abilities to see past or through race? Anyway, a lot to think about. Yeah. Josh, we're going to we're gonna take a quick break and then we're going to come back and to wrap it up and let you go back to the ocean. We want to know a little bit more about resilience, particularly the yeah. resilience you have learned growing up the way you have grown up. We'll be right back. And we're back, Josh. This is always so good to talk to you and to see. I feel like it's a unique perspective. Um, maybe your perspective breaks the stereotype in my head of what I might have expected you to say or mm-hmm. picture. And again, it's a lot for me to think about. And I appreciate you being willing to bring this up. We'd okay. love to know resilience. What does that look like in your own mind? What does it look like for maybe interracial families? And what can it look like for those of us who want, again, to be more sympathetic and just open our eyes to some of the things that maybe we're a little naive to. How does resilience tie into all of that for you in terms of race and culture and just basic human connection? Yeah, I think quickly, you know, I have a friend that lives in Florida. She's white. She's grown up in the South her whole life and her favorite foods are fried chicken. She loves melon. And the reason I say that is because that is a culture of the South. Right. And the, there's black people that live in the South, obviously, but right. that is their but, culture. But it's a it, Southern it, culture. It is it's, true. So, but but in America, that is also a stereotype for yes, race, for, for black for people. Race. So which is it? Yeah, right. good, good, very good distinction. I love so that. So that's a really good one because I grew up with a family that has Southern things. So we would eat grits sometimes or something. But that wasn't because I was black. I didn't eat collard greens if I ate them because I was black. That was because my, I mean, my grandmother's from the South, my mom's side. She grew up in Georgia. She's not black, but she's still, you would think by the things I talk about that actually my family is black sometimes and they see and they're like, wait, because it's a Southern thing. And so I did want to make that quick. And then to the resilience part and interacting with kids and helping them understand that it is to, 
open up and then eliminate some stuff. And one thing that they need to, what needs to be opened up is that carefully when speaking, we don't use a stereotype to say something. So this person cut me off. You can just say that phrase. You don't have to say this Asian person, this black person. So we cut out using race in like a negative connotation. Like your sister did with you. You were just yes. her brother. Yeah. I and love that. Was that. A positive, that would have been a positive place to use it. But even then, it's not necessary. Sure. So this person in front of me in line, it doesn't need to be the black person in front. And it's not because it's mean. It's because that's not necessary. A kid takes that, depending on your tone of voice, sometimes as a negative thing. If you're trying to describe something and it's negative, I would say to refrain using a race or something or a culture even in front of that negative statement because it's not necessary and it really does mess with the kid's mind in my opinion. I love that. Just see past mm-hmm. some of those qualifiers yeah. and just see the person. Yep, see past yeah, that. I love that. Yep. And that's Martin Luther King, you know. Which is different than tell- saying we had an elected official um, up in uh-huh. Davis County recently say, you know, when I see people's hands go up, I don't see black hands. I just see hands go yeah. up. And it's like, okay, all right, this is the opposite side of that. Yeah. Right. This is a different conversation. It's okay to see color. Yes. And it's important to not deny right. seeing the color. Right. If- Sorry, no. And I think it's, and I was going to say to Martin Luther King, what he said, judge people on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. It doesn't mean that they don't have a skin color, but the judgment that you have shouldn't fall based on skin color. Your judgment alone should never fall based on that. And, right. or, really in general that is should be the content of their character somebody being black is a great thing somebody being asian is a great thing but to use it as a judgment is where it becomes a negative thing and not something that's necessary so that's maybe the distinction there and i would say one other part for me with the resilience part is as we're like interacting with our kids when we're giving them movies and books you know toys they need to see people like them, but they need to see people that aren't like them as well. And it's not bad to have black dolls and white dolls for your white kid and for your black kid. It's not negative to have a book about, you know, India versus a book about Florida in their book section. The more you introduce all of that stuff younger, it all of a sudden becomes, they realize, oh, humans are different. They all look different. They all do things differently, but they're actually really similar in the sense that we're all part of the same family, human race. And so, but it's hard if you introduce that later or try to explain, it actually has to be the earlier that it's just there. You don't have to say this is an Indian person. Even if you just give it to them, they'll start to see a lot of natural things that those people do because they're being given it at an early age. It's not necessarily has to be over-explained just like they don't have to over-explain their culture. It's just about how much they get of that culture. That's why I love traveling. Traveling does that really fast, too. Right, exactly. Throw somebody in a situation, it's like, whoa. Like, you want to talk about resilience for a kid, just take them to a different country when they're young, and they will. They'll have an overload of things that they never knew happen, and then they'll most likely love it. A lot of kids just love it because they're like, this is different. This is fun. This is interesting. And so instead of it being this scary, Well, and I think that kids... When it's just normal, it's just normal. So I was going to say that same thing. I think, particularly, I look at my kids and maybe some of the stereotypes or biases I grew up with as a white girl in northern Utah, they don't seem to have. I think they're more open. And I think I love what you've said, Josh. The more open we make it, 
Like this is yep. pe- people can look like this. And again, diversity is so much more than color of skin. You yeah. can get, I mean, me and Michelle, we're pretty diverse, even though mm-hmm. on the surface, yep. you yeah. can say we have a lot of commonality. Right. And the right. commonality right. is important. But I think the diversity is also important. Yeah, Jenny doesn't have tattoos. I don't have any tattoos. None. I don't have a couple. I don't even want my kids to have sticker tattoos. You guys, come on. It's so terrible. But I let them. I just don't want to. (sighs) There's my diversity. No, I just think as we, I think there's such an important power in the word and. And I know we've mentioned this before. And. You and I can look alike and we can be different or you and I can be alike and we can look different. And I think in our, I I think in our culture, not just Utah, but I think American general and maybe the Western world, I don't know. We're so, or Mm -hmm. we think it's gotta be you or me, right or wrong, black or white, or, but but, exactly. But that's the same connotation, right? It's a choice. Versus yep. what if it's both? Right. Both. What yeah, if what that. if you were a black man raised in a white culture and you love people of, of different races and backgrounds? And what if you traveled and your jaw hit the floor when you saw the way other people do things? And then you realized, oh, that's cool. People do things a different way. I mean, it's all of this and conversation. I love that our country's having this conversation right now more openly, just like we're talking about mental health more openly. We're talking about race and gender a lot more openly. My hope is that as we talk more openly, we don't talk more oppositionally. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. where I get nervous is we, we don't want racism. We don't want sexism. We don't want some of these archaic tendencies that we have had. But sometimes it feels like the approach to fixing the problem is to just be meaner to each other versus yeah. saying, hey, we're, we're different and awesome. Let, let, teach me about you. Teach me about your culture. Teach me about your thoughts. Let me still hang on to mine. But you can make mine more rich by opening up my world a little bit broader. So uh, I I love that that you brought up travel because I haven't traveled to a lot of places, but I do have a huge bucket list. And one Mm -hmm. of the things I like to do is look at places where I want to go. And you can look up online on Google. You got to love Google. You can look up not only what is culturally appropriate there, but things not to do. And um, it really opens your eyes to the differences of the actual culture itself. It's a fun little exercise you can do. Even if you can't afford the travel, you can think, oh, I want to go here. What are the things that if I were there that I would want to do or see? And what are the things that I would be as an American like offensive if I were to do there? What are the things that I should avoid? And what are of. Yeah, so like some some countries they don't clink the glasses uh in Hungary, they don't clink their their glasses uh in a toast. Interesting. And um that goes back to some historical hmm. stuff. So like there's all different ways of being that we are and well, it has nothing to do with race, right? It right. just has to do with right. culture. And in today's right. world of technology and Zoom and the travel channel and everything, I mean, we don't have as many excuses to say, oh, I'm from North Ogden. I've never left Caucasian right. Utah. Like, right. okay, listen, right. I can educate myself. I can educate my children. If I can't afford the thousands of dollars to take them around the world, yes. there are still tools at my disposal to help broaden that perspective. Absolutely. And, I love that. And I think it's our often led by our kids. I think our kids tend to be a lot more open-minded in general than yeah. adults. We get set in our ways without knowing sometimes or knowing sometimes. But Josh, this has been so great. I really appreciate your perspective and 
just your willingness to be so open and, and call it like you see it. I love that. Thank I you for appreciate you us. coming on and talking about race. I think that we're doing something good here to have these conversations. And I hope that the people that are listening get a sense that we can, we can all just do a little better. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and just one last thing that's in my mind is just, I think it is so key in what is going on in America and around the world with unifying each other and coming together. We have to be open. And I'm saying that to my black friends and my white friends, you have to have conversations that sometimes you don't want to have or don't know how to have. And you have to make mistakes in those conversations. I think we talked about that the last time you have to have mistakes in those conversations Mm -hmm. and allow people to say things and do things that while in an educational setting aren't necessarily what you would prefer and with a, a nice correction or with a, let me give you a little more information so you don't do that. Right. But without you making me feel like I'm that, the total yeah, jerk exactly. because I said something unknowingly and now I'm change. a bad. Nothing yeah. will change until that happens. Oh, right. Because Josh. it is really hard to have that conversation and have those interactions with if you don't feel like you can say something that might be a mistake. Safe enough right. so, to make it. Where yeah. can we find yeah. you to follow you? I would love to read some of these posts that you've shared. I'm yeah. sure our listeners on would. Facebook. This, this com- but like yeah, just, just Josh Chamberlain. Like how do you, yeah. There's a lot of yeah. Joshes Joshua. in the world. Yeah, so it's Joshua Paul Chamberlain on Facebook. Okay. And then um, I have an Instagram link on there too. But Facebook's where I do most of my posts. This month I'm actually on my Instagram doing, I'm doing um, Black People from History for Black sure. History Month. Awesome. And situations that people may not know about so but we can find can your instagram yeah. from your facebook and your facebook is yep. joshua paul chamberlain i appreciate yep. that i appreciate your having um just the the room for people like me to probably say something really dumb and and then teach me and help me and i hope that it would be a two-way street where we can say actually you probably shouldn't you know how many times do people say dumb things to widows or <laughs> or whatever right. you know but giving each other the latitude to try we're all trying i think most of us really do mean well and with a little bit of education and friendship, look how much better we could be as a people. I love this, Josh. Thank you so much. No, of course. Thank you for coming. And oh my gosh, I am so jealous of listening the to those birds <laughs> in the background. And I can I all... know birds, water, yes, little music. It's actually it, been lovely. It, it's it a is, lovely escape. It, it's a little escape, but I, I'm sitting here dreaming of uh, where of not when can I here? When can I go get some warmth on my body? And this room is so cold. It, it does, it's hard to imagine being warm right now. Anyway, thank you so much. Of course. So if you are interested, you can subscribe to free to our podcast. And if you like what you've heard, you can give us a rating and review. If you know of someone who has a real story about real life that uh, you're willing to share, send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And remember, whatever you do today... Remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles other people are facing in their lives. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thanks, Josh. See ya. Yep, of course. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold season three, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.